Thank you all for your support of the Wise Fool Patreon account. If you've not become part of our network, by becoming a supporter, you receive the opportunity to help in the choosing of upcoming guests, cities that I should visit, and also you can give me questions that you would like me to ask future guests. You can find us and support us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of my many weaknesses that has become glaringly obvious to me through my insights from my guests is that my lack of professionalism in the business practices when it comes to my personal artwork. So I've become putting my work on sale on SachiArt.com. You can find my artwork available for purchase at SachiArt, S-A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T.com slash Matthew Doles, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S. Thank you. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Uh, my name is Nicholas Naughton, but I go by Nick. So, All right, Nick. Now, you run a podcast called Printcast, and you also are a printmaker in your own right. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I often want to know about people just to get the conversation going is sort of how did you even get into being creative? So from childhood, was it parents, school, teacher, friend, uh, an experience, you know, gone to a cultural thing? Like how did you even find your sort of creative interest? It was always there when I think back, you know, my my favorite class was always art class. And that's that's just kind of a thing I think all kids are into. But I had supportive parents, I guess, because they, you know, like enlisted me in lots of classes and like, you know, I'd take like ceramics class at the college where my mom worked, you know, when I was like seven or eight or something, you know, so I was making stuff just at a very early age, really rudimentary, like terrible things. You know, I wasn't good at what I was doing at all or I didn't show a lot of natural ability, I feel like. But as I got older, there was like this persistent desire to keep doing it, you know, so I kept drawing especially and, uh, you know, just kept doing it through college and high school. And when I went to college, I actually like decided I wanted to be an art major, like pretty much from the get go. So it was never really an option to do anything else. Where was all this? So, so where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? I grew up in Iowa. So in the States here and right in the middle of the States here in Iowa on the Mississippi River, kind of a smallish hometown, like about 70, 80,000 people, you know, so I'd Small city to me, but now that I live in real cities, it's not really a city where I came from. But yeah, I grew up in Iowa and had a very just normal kind of Midwestern life growing up. I went to the University of Iowa, so... Oh, get out. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you get... I'm sure I graduated far before you. Well, you get the, the printmaking credential then, like going to Iowa of all places, like it was it was hard to not fall into it, you know, and I have, I have to admit, I don't really know much about printing before I went to Iowa. I, you know, had done the rudimentary things like a lino cut in class or something, you know, but yeah, as I got into college, I, I think I took one random print course and it was just like so interesting and like expanded so much upon drawing and like the other things that I was very used to doing that it just like opened up endless amounts of experimentation and 
you know, stuff for me to explore. So. Oh yeah, I loved it there. They had a great uh, lithography studio, if I remember correctly. Like oh, some yeah. of my favorite prints was their from their. They had a great selection of stones to work with. Yeah, great stones. A really great intaglio setup too, and uh, they didn't do a whole lot of relief. Like at the time when I look back, you know, it's like letterpress did didn't really exist. Although it's always been kind of cordoned off into other departments and de- especially into design departments, but. Screen printing was also like offsite at Iowa, which I thought was weird. So I didn't, some of this stuff I didn't encounter till like way later, you know, as I kind of kept working post grad school. But, and where'd you end up going to grad school? Uh, New Mexico State. I reached a point after undergrad, I took two years off and was cooking full time. And had I not gone to school again, I probably would be a chef right now. But I felt the urge to go back. I'd been drawing like feverishly for a couple of years and just needing an art community. And I couldn't really find one on my own. So I, Applied to a bunch of, I applied to two schools. I meant to apply to a bunch and I got into one and that was New Mexico State. But then it all kind of unfolded as I looked at it. You know, it was intimidating because like the Southwest is so drastically different from the Midwest. You know, it's like there's no greenery anywhere. It's all brown palette and desert Southwest, very desert. But, you know, as I went down, it's like immediately I got like teaching jobs and in-state tuition, you know, all before I even showed up. So it was just like I had like a job, I had cheaper tuition, good professor, good classes, good classmates, you know. So it it was a good place to land at the time. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Uh, Right now, 39. Oh, you're not that much younger than me. I'm 46. Okay, yeah. You look a lot younger than me. Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) But nobody on the podcast can see you. I can see you. Yeah. So anyways... Okay, and then you moved on, and so how did you sort of get to where you are now? So leaving grad school, so what were some of the progressive steps to get you to, and to be honest, I'm not exactly sure where you are. I mean, I know you're in Los Angeles, and I know you run the podcast, but what else is it that you're doing these days? Yeah, I can give you the short version. So I, although what, the short version? It's a podcast. You yeah. can make it a long version. From, gra- from grad school to now, it's been, you know, I got I got out of grad school in 08, so it's been 12 years, I guess, now coming up. Basically, through grad school, I did printmaking majority of the whole time, but I also did a lot of painting and kind of messed around with different things. But throughout grad school, I kept thinking, like, well, when I get done, I'm not going to have access to all this equipment anymore, so I need to be self-sufficient in a way that prepares me for that. What's weird is that that conditioning has never stopped to where it's like I still don't even own like a printing press, even though I should have bought one like 10 years ago, you know, and but I got this mentality where I was just like, all right, I need to work like a painter where I can go anywhere and I just need a few things. I can buy my materials locally. You know, I need paper that I, you know, I can find and whatnot. But I set myself up in that way so that when I got done, I basically transitioned into working out of my home and was making really big monolithic woodcuts at the time. So like, you know, four by eight foot kind of size, you know, did that for a while. And I was very committed to like the art path, you know, so I was like applying for teaching jobs, like all over the country, like, you know, 15 or 20 applications every year. And that went nowhere. And it was, you have to think in 2008, that's like the year the financial crisis happened. And like, the you know, the whole economy tanked like worldwide and, so going into grad school in, what, 05, they were like, this is the best time to be here. Once you're done, there's going to be teaching jobs. All the boomers are retiring. This is great for you. And I was like, yeah. And I was like super psyched to be a teacher. It's like all I wanted to really do. 
And it's all I did through grad school too. I have the feeling. I mean, I've been in academia for almost 20 years and it, it's no, it's nowhere near the promise that it was years ago. Like it used to be the, the pinnacle of a career was to find a job in academia and then you could stay there and do tenure and all this kind of jazz. And it's that those opportunities are just kind of drying up across the board. Mm-hmm. Well, it's changed and, I get, you know, a lot of a lot of schools have diversified and they want to like have a much more, you know, diverse kind of faculty base that reflects the student base and that reflects the world we want to live in, not the the world of the white man that like existed until, you know, 10 or 20 years back and even now. Um, 20 years ago, I actually I actually applied for a job. I'm not going to say where, but I actually went. They they flew me down there to be the head of their photography department. And literally the dean turns to me and he said, I want you to be here, but we have to hire a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had similar conversations where I thought, like, should I apply for that? And friends who were on committees were like, no, we've already been looking at specific types of candidates. And anyway, I get how that's all happening, and I completely support it. But it changed my career path in that evolving like it has in the past 10 years or so. And so I got out of school. Went and traveled for a good four months through India with my girlfriend at the time. Nice. And yeah, it was great. It was a like a life-changing thing. And, you know, we traveled a good portion of the whole country, went to Nepal for a couple of weeks, which is probably my favorite part of the whole trip, oddly enough, was getting out of India. But it, uh, yeah, it was, it was a kind of a, a weird time. I was applying for residencies, you know, and I was going for all the big ones, like the ones where it's like you live there for a year and you become a part of some community. And I was like all in. So I was applying to all of those and, you know, and, and actually doing pretty well. So I was actually getting, I was like the finalist for quite a few of them and like would do these like Skype interviews that I, looking back, feel like I blew because I didn't really know how to do a video interview properly. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think of setting or lighting or anything like the way that aesthetics matter. I feel like I didn't look very good in that interview and I probably could have come off better just by sculpting the video experience. I don't know. Anyway, did that and nothing happened. So I, I got a job at a print shop in Kansas City and it was just random because my girlfriend, after we went to India, she moved to Kansas City for like a short time just to kind of figure out what to do. So I was like in Iowa holdover you know, applying for things and doing that. And then she got, she got a studio in Kansas city. And I was like, what are you doing? You're putting down roots. Like we were going to move somewhere and you know, all these things. And so she, she planted roots real quickly. And then I went to visit her and in the building where she rented a studio, I got a job running this like giant, awesome new print shop that they had built. Very cool. Yeah. It was a, a great opportunity, but so mismanaged by the nonprofit that owned everything that it was just like a wash. It was like a, there was almost nothing I could do because I had no operating budget. I got paid, I think, like a thousand a month to work some mysterious amount of hours that they were asking of me, you know. So they were, I mean, they were acting like I was a full time staffer working for almost nothing. And, you know, so it evolved over time. And then suddenly the nonprofit closed and I launched my own studio from the wake of that. So then that kind of takes care of like the next like eight years. I basically was just like a, a business owner gradually became my full-time job and mainly just doing screen print and letterpress. So it was like two things that I didn't even do in school at all, but had learned after school, like after grad school, basically learned those two techniques and then made my living from them for quite a while until about two years ago. Yeah. So then I moved to LA, closed my shop, sold everything off, 
kind of started the podcast in that same time frame. And then, yeah. And now I work at a, a book bindery and I do like letterpress and foil stamping and lots of just make tons of stuff for people. And yeah, it's been good working in Hollywood. Is that really good working in Hollywood? Where I work, yeah, it is. I don't know if I like, I don't like Hollywood as much. It's kind of gritty and it's it's grim and weird up there and full of tourists also. And, you know, it's it's like not where the locals would go, I guess. But Yeah, I've never, I've only driven through Los Angeles. I don't know it very well. Actually, that's not true. I stayed, I've been there for a conference one time, but that's about it. I know San Francisco, though. I went to school in San Francisco. Yeah. So I'm fascinated. I love prints and I love printmaking and I love the whole works on paper industry and all this kind of stuff. And you are a guy with this sort of hand in the pulse. You're talking to people. You're, you're doing your podcast about it. So what's going on with the print industry these days? Well, I mean, the timing of when we're recording right now, there's, there's a virus pandemic ongoing. So at some point, this won't be the case uh, as people listen to this in the future. But yeah, right now everything is rocky. It's like real. Everything is very much up in the air and changed. And uh, I think most of us are out of work for the most part. I mean, that's just true across the board, probably globally yeah. at this point when it comes to creative people. But in general, what I'm talking about, though, is like, are people still enthusiastic about like buying and paying for prints? And I mean, you're, ta- you're saying you do like handmade books, you do foil stamping, this kind of stuff. Like, Mm-hmm. Has it been relegated to a commercial art or are people still using it for fine arts? For whatever reason, they're they're kind of in different camps. Like they're part of the same beast, but they're like different limbs or something, you know? And I would say like graphic design is kind of similar. Like printing, as I've been exploring it through the show, especially like I talk to people who are commercial artists, which I would say are like professional screen printers, letter pressers, foil stampers, you know, for sure book binders. And these are all people who are like running skill-based services for other people. And for the most part, you're, en- you're enlisted to make things for other people, you know, and you have very little creative input or control other than like you're a really good technician. So you make sure things turn out right. You can consult on things and whatnot. But for the most part, I'm a vehicle for other people's work to happen. Yeah. You're a craftsman and they, they yeah. and you're fulfilling their vision. Yes. And I've been doing that for a while. And I think... Thinking back, especially when I think back to even like grad school and stuff, like there were things I did as an artist where I, I absolutely had no commercial mind at that time. And I was very much just like expressive, just making things to make them. I wasn't worrying about making money, you know, the way most artists are when they're younger. And there were just like, there were projects I would launch and just little fun things I would do that were just purely because I wanted to. But when I look back, they were the seeds of what I do now. They were showing that I wanted to make things for people, that I wanted to work for things that were timely, like an event or, you know, making posters and things, you know, although I never really like jumped into that a whole lot. But, you know, the seeds were there like early for me to be more commercially geared. Um, but, But my training was completely fine art. So, you know, when I trained, it was like I wanted to be an artist and show in galleries and museums and then eventually be revered for my beautiful creations and, you know, command the markets. Yeah. Like, and that's what everybody wants. And I don't know who of us achieves it. And when they do achieve it, the people I know who sort of have, it's not what you think it is at all. And it's a bunch of work, but now you've commodified your own creative expression. So it's really confusing because you're making things for you, but it's like, are you making it for the market? You know? And 
So I kind of understand both sides of the coin, but they even to me being this person who rides the line, it's like they are separate to me. And I can't I can't see how they could fit together because they serve different purposes in the world, you know? Under no circumstances do I think that they're the same thing. But what I'm sort of interested in is, is are you running into, like in your travels and your experiences, are you running into more people who are using the graphic arts as a fine art medium or more as a commercial medium? You know, I think I think both are thriving. Okay, that's good. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think, you know, as you probably experienced too, when I went to Iowa, you know, and this is what, like... Uh, 99, 2000-ish kind of era, you know? And when I was there, even though I was in the print studio and we had a really large print department there, as you know, it's like there was, when I was there, probably 13, maybe 15 grad students. It was really big and there was a whole lot of undergrads and we were all very devoted and some of us stuck through for years together. But it was always like the dying art form. It was this thing that we were doing because of passion. But especially like the other artists, like that, that was the world where like painting was supreme, and if you were a painter, you were super cool. And all of us printmakers were just kind of tinkering around in the studio over here making works on paper, you know, and it... Oh, when I was there, I was primarily a photographer, which was even lower on the totem pole. So. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it, it's weird, those those divides have very much melted away a little bit. They're still there, but when I talk to people now for the show, I talk to commercial people who are, you know, running letterpress shops, and they're as busy as ever, and... More and more people are going into that end of printing, like in the commercial side, you know, printing gig posters, printing tea towels and T-shirts and tote bags and whatever. You know, there's always stuff that needs to be made. And I think some people today want to talk to who they perceive to be more of like an artisan artist than some big shop that's like a warehouse where they just like knock out goods and they really don't even care about the making of it. Like, you know, I always kind of had like an extra hand in it where I was like, I care what the outcome is. Oh, I'm a horrible snob about all that stuff. Like, I'm such a snob. Like, I want to make sure if I'm going to get something letter pressed, I want it done with either lead type or woodblock prints. I don't mm-hmm. even want any of the like polymer, whatever that they can basically like vector based design anything. Like, I want it yeah. done traditionally. Yeah, I uh, I have a lot of huge respect for the craft and a lot of like benchmarks for what is good craft, you know, as you do it for a long time, you get that way. And I think, so yeah. So the other half is like the artists I talk to, I don't know, it's a different art ecosystem than even when I started, you know? So it's like today it's like, I look at art on mostly on Instagram a lot of the time, but I I read tons of stuff and, you know, I read hyperallergic and I keep up with like the art world in the larger sense. And and here in L.A., there's quite a bit of cool stuff to to see and go take part in and, you know, openings and stuff you can go to. So that's fun. Um, but art seems to be doing great. You know, like there are more and more people I see who are. I don't know who they are, but they're on Instagram and they're just like, yeah, and, you know, I've been doing this for two years, making my lino cuts. And now I'm like going full time and like they have a huge following and they sell everything that they make and make money and make a living and. Like, I don't know how that could have been possible pre-social media, you know? It's it's true, absolutely. But, like, I, I personally, I'm a bit dubious of those people that say that. I mean, I, I will, for instance, uh, just to give a perfect example, like, through the act of doing this podcast and all the people that I've sort of spoken with and run into, 
not a single person is actually admitted to saying, oh, yes, I make a living from my sales on Instagram and Facebook and all this. Like nobody has actually said that, even though I keep hearing stories of people who do that. So mm-hmm. it, it feels like a bit of a white whale unicorny kind of thing. Like I'm not sure these people are real, even though they there are stories of these people being real. Yes, I get you there. I uh, I will say... You know, and this is the thing too, it's like I, I still like I only see what people put out there in the presentation of who they are, you know. So when they're saying like I'm full time Yeah, but that's just public relations. Like I mean you know, yeah. it's one of those like fake it till you make it kind of like I'm gonna say I'm doing it full time, but my husband's actually sponsoring this whole thing. Or like, you know, I'm gonna say I'm full time and I'm earning a living from this, even though my lawyer wife is you know, bringing in all the money and paying all the bills. Yeah, I was gonna say let's not gender the support system people, but no, I no, I I agree. I think there there are situations where, like, if I were gonna paint my perfect career, it's like I would have, I'd marry rich and I'd have someone who has a very stable non-art job, and then I would be the artist who would contribute and do everything as an equal partner, but I would have a little more legroom to like do these creative things and have an open schedule and what, you know, like that's, that's such a good combination. I think when people have it and it works, it, it allows some people to like have much more room to pursue their craft. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I actually look, I have married an accountant wife and I look forward to being a Mr. Mom where I can sort of yeah. have the free time and flexible lifestyle of raising a child and being able to be in the studio when she can go back to work. Yeah. No, I, I can see the benefit of that. And for whatever reason, I've always dated artists, you know, for the like in, in one way or another, they're always some sort of artist. And what I've gotten from that is I have partners who are as devoted to their work as they are to the relationship. And it can be difficult. And because we both want the same things, we both want flexibility, but then like neither of you are financially stable. Like that's one thing that's really hard to deal with on a consistent basis, you know. Oh, I dated my fair share of crazy women in my lifetime including many artists um it's it it's it is some there are those random times where it works like i know some people who are like two artists and they are fabulous together but it is mm-hmm. a it's a it's a unicorn dancing on a rainbow kind of like random fluke of nature when those work out most times those do not work out for sure um it's hard it's very hard but i mean on the flip side of that it's also hard for a very creative person to be with a very non-creative person also because they butt heads but you know there's got to be just basically an underlying appreciation compromise respect these kinds of things that that, uh, is the basis of it and that's equally as hard just in the opposite way yeah i think if anything we all need a partner people like us the creatives we need someone who can at least understand where we're coming from and engage with you know the topics and the meaty things that we're into investigating and talking about and thinking about and you have to have someone who's receptive or who can even engage a little bit with you or it's or you or you're going to find yourself wanting that audience all the time and you'll have to find it elsewhere you know like in a Um, podcast yes yeah yeah exactly yeah, it's it's hard, but I mean, but that gets to you. Also mentioned something about the like wanting stability. Like this is a big thing in my conversations. This desire for stability. Now, of course, 
right at this exact moment while we're recording this, we're in the middle of the pandemic. And so like the, all theories are sort of out the window by the time this is done. But the desire for some amount of stability is still there. The desire for consistency, stability, whatever, specifically financial is still very important. And, and I've, so, so like that leads me to like in the print industry, of course, keep in mind, I'm focusing from the fine art side less or more so than the commercial side of this. So from the fine art side, I find that it probably is going to be very good for them coming out of this because people are going to be more interested in buying more affordable arts instead of maybe splurging for the very expensive stuff. And generally works on paper, which are made in additions, are the on the range of the less expensive stuff on the market. Yeah, I think there will be, I mean, we'll see too, you know, I don't know how there's like stimulus money that'll show up in the next like one to six months or something stupid, but it, I think the industry will bounce right back, you know, because it it had to stop really abruptly, mostly because once there's no audience for needing the things we make, then like there's no point for us to do what we do, which really sucks. But, you know, I work for a company that's a book bindery, which is a bizarre thing in the first place. Those don't exist that much anymore. But we're very busy. Like we work for tons of like photographers and people who kind of want, you know, people who are like frontline clients who like want books made for themselves, you know, and they'll pay hundreds of dollars for like a nice hardcover just to do pitches to other people for for bodies of work and stuff, you know. And so we do that type of work, but we also do tons of that other kind of meat and potato stuff that that people just want, but you know, people who have like a finer taste in things like might want something nicer and they're willing to spend money. And, you know, like I did a demo test print for like Tesla motors and stuff. And it's just like, that's a giant company, but like, they're going to throw down for some really nice business cards is what it turns out. And actually, I don't know for sure if we're doing that job, but we've talked about it and we're in talks, but we were, but I get psyched because we we get a bunch of cool clients, you know, working in Hollywood. It's like we're kind of in connection with like, you know, movie stars and, you know, people, people who I never would have thought I would be printing for. But then in the end, it's like after you've printed long enough, it's all just stuff. And like if it's, you know, a note card for Kim Kardashian, which has not happened, but it's been talked about versus like a business card for some office company in New York. It's just like they're they're kind of the same exact things. Like what I like are when people like push the envelope a little bit and make me step up with my craft, but it's often not really needed, you know? Well, it's tough. I mean, I love a good handmade, printmade, you know, so whether it's silk screened or letterpress or whatever, like business card, flyer, whatever, you know, a beautiful silk screened poster for a concert. I absolutely adore these things. Like I personally collect these things whenever they're available. You know, yeah. I literally like grab it off the wall and throw it in my collection. But but they are exponentially more expensive. Like I mean, you know, like if I had a yeah. choice given like whatever my budget was to go out and have a, a new business card made and I could get 20 at letterpress or 500 digitally printed, it's really hard to um, to sort of weigh all the factors and say, oh yeah, the beautiful handmade one is worth it. Mm-hmm. How do you do that pitch? How do you, or, or do you even have to pitch? Like, or are you your company's already good enough that basically they have a good reputation and you don't have to convince people and people who want quality are already coming to you. 
it's an easy pitch for me. Like I know exactly how to talk about it with people, but it's ultimately their choice. So I also kind of, that's part of when I talk to people, like in that way, I, I know how to kind of like dance around the topic. I know how to talk about the potential ups and the cost, but I can talk about the benefits of what they're going to get for that too. You know, it's, it's all second nature after you do it a while, but it, usually people who come for like say like letterpress or something like they know what they want kind of coming in like you're not usually selling someone who's thinking about vista print but they decided to talk to you it's like there's it's like you're saying there's you know a vista print business card probably costs like five cents a card or i've gotten them where they were free like i literally got free cards back in the day but i paid eight bucks shipping or something you know it's like i don't know how they're making any money they're not probably but yeah two cents a card versus some of the stuff I could make might be two to four dollars a card. And when you're doing custom work like letterpress or, you know, a lot of things like that, you need a bunch of custom materials made for the job. So like I'll I'll have to use like the vector art like you were talking about to make a polymer plate and then, you know, buy a bunch of paper that could be really expensive and there could be other processes like gluing two sheets of paper together to make it thicker or painting the edge on the card, you know, all these fancy things that people add on. Um I, I, I'm like salivating. Like, I love all this stuff. Yeah, it's so great. And I love I love making it, you know. It's like the best thing to make things that you feel like are going to have a presence out in the world, even though I may never encounter it again, you know. Well, I mean, that's one of my things that, like, I feel like is to a certain extent is sort of getting lost, you know. So with all of our social media and our, our internet uses and all this kind of stuff, like the artistry of even just, like, choosing a nice textured paper mm-hmm. is not... Uh, as respected as it used to be. Yeah, it makes me think for some reason right now of that article article by uh, Walter Benjamin, the the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is kind of like an old school art history text, you know, but it, I always think about how he describes the work of art having an aura. And it just, it so holds true for me just being a person who kind of works in both worlds, it's like, you know, in the commercial world, there are like really fine, refined quality things like what I make or what like a a music like luthier might make, you know, or a, a fine chef. But it's like also in all those worlds are like Fender Stratocasters made in like a factory and like McDonald's food and, you know, yeah, Vista print or something where they make very similar things to what I do, but the quality is drastically um, lessened because of mass production and the lack of human interaction and touch in the process and everything, you know? So it's, I feel like the things I make have some of that aura, you know, and I can feel it and I know that other people feel it. And when you hand some of these nice things to people, like when they receive it, they're like, Ooh, and you you see them have a moment and they kind of tap the card on the, on their finger or like on a table to show like, Oh, this is really thick paper. This is really nice, you know? And, Oh yeah, I'm a horrible snob about know. beautiful materials. Like I love yeah. good paper. So you're focused mostly on the commercial side. Do you do any? Still do any fine artwork yourself? I do. Yeah, not nearly to the degree I used to. Like you know, once especially now I have like a full time job, so it's like hard. You know, I have to really kind of budget in time and make an effort. But I. Uh, but you work at a place where you have all the tools. See, this is the thing, though. It seems like a great situation, but... It does. It's, you know, here's the thing. Like, say I want to, like, use some of the equipment and foil stamp or make something like that where I work currently. I have to throw down for all these these materials. 
So for me to make a, a cool sample side project could cost two or 300 bucks. It doesn't always end up like that, but a lot of the cool, fun, custom things kind of just like add up in cost. And then you have to think like, do I want to spend $100 to make this thing I'm thinking about? Or should I maybe save that money? Or, you know, it's like it gets, I also have to think, I think now I'm, I'm always thinking like, if I invest that money, can I get that money out of it later? And it's like, I don't always know that I can anymore. Because once you stop making art at a, a fast rate and showing it all the time, it's like you're your audience and the way that you might be able to sell some of that art kind of dries up a little bit. And it's not like it doesn't happen. I make money. I sell art every year, but it's, it's, it's almost more because I have a tether to whatever spirit is that sells art in the universe. Like I have a tether to that still. And so people will come to me with opportunities. They're more fine art based, but it's because I think I laid the groundwork for it years ago and I still kind of like do it and, try to maintain it on a minimal level, but it, you know, I don't know, back, back when I first started, when I was um, out of grad school, you know, I'd, I would show 15 or 20 times a year, you know, I was applying for every juried print biennial and, you know, I mean, my work was like showing all over the place. And to think back to then, like what I remember the lesson I learned then was like, okay, I did all this cool stuff. My work was all over the place. I didn't go to any of the shows. And I spent a bunch of my money for that to happen, but it didn't make anywhere of, you know, an equal amount of money to pay for it. So it, it made kind of art seem like a weird choice where it's like, it's, but it made your CV look beautiful. Definitely. Yeah. I had a really good CV for a while, but you know, it's like, what, what's this choice to make, to make this art and to like be in shows and share it and like have good responses, but then like no money, you know, it seemed it taught me a really weird lesson, which I think maybe is why I gravitated towards commercial work. Cause it's like, there's a quantifiable value for what I do now. And I think there is for art too, but art, art's weird. You know, it's like, if you're not making something that might be appealing to like the biggest possible mass market audience of people, then, you know, you might not be able to sell it. And then you have to think like, what are you really making it for? And should you spend that hundred dollars? Cause like you just probably aren't going to get that back and you can't afford that, you know, or a hundred dollars. That's nothing. That's one that's tube nothing. of paint. Come on. Yeah, no, it is. But yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, when you work in a print shop, it's like the last place you would go to be creative. And that's just for me, I've found, but I, it's just been hard to like flip the switch to where you're in a room all day and you're working on projects for other people. And then at some point you just like stop and quit working on those things to like work on your own project. It's like the other stuff is always sitting there and like has my attention, you know? So it's like when I enter that room, it's like, it's always for other purposes, not for my own. And once in a while, I will say I do stay late at work and stuff now. And I, I do projects and stuff and, and it's been fun like that. And I'm probably going to start making more books just to like kind of use that part of our setup, you know, and, and why not making hardcover books is really fun. But yeah, it's weird. It's weird how you'd think printing more would make you make more art, but it's actually had the complete reverse effect. Yeah, see, uh, there were don't get me wrong, there were times when I was a, a teacher and so like I'm teaching I'm teaching art and it at the end of the day, even though the school has all the resources to do all these really great things, I'm just like I want nothing to do with it. Please just take me home. Like I don't want to see this place. I don't want to talk to these people. Nothing. But it, it, I found that it, it flipped at a certain point 
And I suddenly realized, like you were saying about being in school, it's like you only have even a job has the potential of ending at some point. So like you only have so much time with the potential of this resources. So I ended up like really going overboard. I I was lurking in uh, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And they, of course, have a lot of money and they just throw money at the schools. And so I, while I was there, they, when I got there, they had no printing facilities really at all. They had a little bit, they had a little bit of silk screen and, and no digital printing at all, like literally no digital printers. By the time I left, they had three large format inkjet printers and they had endless amounts of paper. I ended up leaving that place with like 800 prints ready for me to sell. Like it's, yeah, great fun. Like I I can spend weeks in their, in their screen printing shop. And I just like went crazy during the the breaks and and I ended up leaving there with quite a lot of prints in my catalog that are now available, which I yeah. now put up on sachiart.com for sale so people can find them there. How oh, cool. So, well, which leads to the question of like how the fine artwork you do make these days, how do you, do you show it? Do you get it out? Do you sell it? Like, what do you do with it? I make some, you know, I make some in the style of it's just for me and so I just make it because I'm compelled to. And I... I do a lot of drawings and things and I've I've kind of at this point resigned. You know, it's it's one thing when you're in school or you're you're working kind of full time sort of as an artist. Like you can you can maintain this line of inquiry that you can get really deep into subjects and for whatever reason now in my world I I have a full time job, I have a partner and I you know I don't have the time to maintain that inquiry. And so I find the things I make are more random and more reflecting of like everyday life that I'm living and things like that. It's not like these like deep topics that I would spend like months researching and writing about. And the work I do now, you know, some of it's for me, but then I do some commissions which seem to pop up pretty much on a yearly basis at this point. Um, and so it's it's usually from people I've had contact with before or I don't, it's always just like some contact or person connected to me or, you know, it's it's hard to describe where they come from, but but sometimes it's literally like I'll just make something really cool, like of my own creative stuff, and I'll put it out. And then I'll just someone will be like, oh, my God, is that for sale? And I know people see that on Instagram a lot, but it's like for whatever reason, that's like where a lot of my commissions and things generate. I'm fascinated by this. But it's people I know. It's never like some lady in Florida was like, oh, my God, can I buy that? And then she Instagram you know, DMs me and then it, it all goes through like that never happens. What I tell people is like, get out of your world and go talk to people, meet people, network. It's like the most important thing you could do, you know, because I think everything I've done has come from that. My best clients were for the most part until now where I'm not finding the clients and I just make stuff. When I was running my company, it was like it was literally because I just went out and met people and I would talk to people and I have an easy way of interacting if, you know, if I get along with a person, like everything came from just like talking and networking and So even, yeah, the commissions, yeah, the commissions and everything are just like through gallery people I've known, but like somehow I got networked in with them years ago. And so it just keeps kind of popping up here and there, you know? Yeah. I mean, the network is the foundation of the creative industries. So it, I mean, I can't tell you how many jobs I've ended up getting because of some 
director of films that I that I happen to know and he recommended me to some you know other person and they recommended me to some other person like mm-hmm. it, oftentimes in the creative industries it's not even you know equal peers so it's not like printmaker to printmaker photographer to photographer oftentimes it's like photographer to writer to director to you know a fashion designer back to me as a photographer kind of thing like so it's it's the, the network is the way it's done and you have to build it you have to the the hard part that i find is the maintenance of it like i am wickedly good at just like showing up at a place i can meet people i can schmooze people i can like be friends with people what i personally find a lot of to be very difficult is maintaining these relationships Mm -hmm. it can be hard yeah and i'm i'm sort of like an introvert extrovert you know so i can go out and be just a spunky you know interesting guy out on the town and then i will go home and like be super like freaked out and not want to go anywhere or talk to anybody and you know and uh it's weird i don't know i go back and forth but it's just how it has to go i feel like i need i need some outer and some inner to like balance or something you know but yeah it's hard you have to maintain and i've learned over the years you have to like show up for other people like the ways that they might show up for you like if they're coming to your art shows and stuff it's like you better fucking go to their art shows like you know or if like they're hitting you up to go do stuff like you have to go and reverse like hit them up and you know motivate that yourself too it's like you have to participate or or it'll just kind of wither up on you you know and not in a manipulative way like everybody knows when they're being used by somebody so you can't use yeah. people no no it's totally like give and take i you know like as a friend would you know or something like that but uh but no, you can always smell through when people want to use you. It's like that's that's easy, and it sucks when people you you know or people you think are your friends like flip and want to kind of use you for knowledge or something. It's I got to where I I I think I just had a lot of things I'd done, and I I must have come off to people like I just knew things or something. But I I started getting hit up a lot by people who'd be like, "Hey, I want to pick your brain about X and X project I'm working on, or I'm working on a gallery show, and we have an idea for this thing. I want to talk to you and." majority of those things don't pan out or they're like not even thought through in a way to like be worth the money I might make from it or or they don't even understand how much it will cost for me to do it and so they you know we have to talk about pricing and things in a weird way that you know I don't know if I like um yeah years ago some people we used to joke about this which is we say like basically if some other creative person comes up to you some like hey I want to do this thing I got this idea just basically you just go okay great yeah that's fabulous keep in touch you know so like mm-hmm. always seem enthusiastic because chances are like 95% of those people are it's not going to work out for whatever reason but yeah. you don't want to be the ass you, you know you don't want to be the guy that goes like uh no I don't have time for you you know, so like, let, no, them yeah. keep, let them keep thinking their idea, let them keep doing it. And you're willing to support it until they run out of steam. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's hard. Like if I had to figure out how to run some new type of business, like the thing you would wish you can do is just like hit someone up and they'll just like tell you how they did it and then you'll be good to go, you know? And I've had people do that to me. I'll, you know, I've honestly done that to other people where I, I wrote to someone in the UK one time about Risograph ink. And I was like, just asking them, like, I'm trying to find different colors, I'm trying to find yellow. 
I see that you guys have it. Like, where are you buying it, you know, at your shop or whatever? And I was given like a very cold response from one place where they were just like, yeah, I don't know. You have probably different distributors. We get it from here. But, they, you know, they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to share anything. And it was kind of insulting that I was asking for like proprietary knowledge in a way. And I knew that. But it, there are times where you're so up against a wall, you have no choice but to just like randomly ask people and hope that something can come from it, you know. If you need that, the Brody Art Yard in Budapest, Hungary, actually has a good supplier. Don't ask oh, me. Well, I just you. happen to know that. <laughs> where were you then? No, like that's the thing. And it, it, I don't know. So people hit me up like that. If it's an easy ask, I'll definitely like help people out. Like I wrote some dude a long Instagram message about how to like launch like a gig poster industry for himself. You know, I mean, it, I'll do it. And now it's, I might even be more willing than when I was like a full on company doing it myself. But it's interesting. Like, please don't take this offensively. I mean this in the nicest, politest of ways. I love printmakers. They are like the most um, creative OCD people I've ever known. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, that's for sure. It has, you have to be partly like that because there's, there's an obsessive level of craft that if you're really good at what you're doing, it's like you're paying attention on a level of like sound and like. Oh, yeah. The I mean, sen- very the sense fine of like sensory when you're thing. cranking it, you can like feel the humps and you can, you can mm-hmm. touch the paper and know where the inconsistencies are. I mean, there's there's a, a, an absolute level of obsessive compulsiveness that is necessary to, to really be top of your game in printmaking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's definitely a part of it always. And I'm just tuned into it now. If I'm in, it's same thing with like cooking, you know, I'm a big cook too. And it's like, if I'm in a room and I can catch the whiff of a certain smell, like I will automatically intervene if the food is like starting to burn or something. Like I can detect it like you wouldn't fucking believe. And I walk over and like do something because I have to. Same thing when I'm like running a press or something, I can hear the second that it goes off. Like you can tell the sound difference. It might just be a thicker clunk as it clunks along, like for, you know, on and on and on it you can hear it what's the name of this uh print shop you're working for um yeah the shop i work at is called paper chase press now it sounds like you're using more sort of like industrial machines and not so many like hand presses is that that right like yeah like for for like a small mom and pop type of bindery that we are like we're you know we're not a huge company by any means like there are there are much bigger ones in la that they make like mountains of hardcover books in a couple days and stuff. You know, we we take like a lot longer to do things, but the the more refined stuff, like the fine hardcover books with like fancy paper, those are like very much like handmade by like one dude who's like sewing stuff and you know gluing paper. It's all very old school. But a lot of the other things we do, there there is a little bit of automation, but it's sort of like the ground level of like if you can buy the one low end machine that'll make folding paper way faster. It's like, we have that machine, but it's like a step above the really rickety crappy thing that you hate using that no one wants anymore. And then the step below that is like you're folding paper with a bone folder, you know? So we're, we're very, uh, very simple in what we can do, but, but it allows that we have the right stuff that we can make really nice things on a small, uh, small quantity basis. Yeah. But I love the things that are done with a good bone folder though. Come on. Oh, yeah. I used to carry one, like, I think about 15 years, I had a bone folder in my backpack, just in case. I used to have a bone folder I wore as a necklace because it had a hole drilled through it. Like, I love that thing. That's a great idea. Yeah. 
you never know. You just never know when you need to fold a sheet of paper or tear a sheet of paper. Even or... just score a piece of paper for that yeah. matter. Come on. It comes yeah. up. I'm a big fan. I mean, this is this goes back to the materiality of the whole thing. Like, I'm a huge fan of materiality and and the appreciation for good stuff. Because, like, I've you know I've lived in the United States and I've been I've lived on East Coast, West Coast. I, of course, I went to the University of Iowa, and then I also now have lived in the Middle East, and then I'm now in Europe. And they the resources of different materials is dramatically different in the different places. Like um, when I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, actually, um, the, they have like the Morgan Conservatory. Have you ever heard of this place? No. Uh-uh. Oh, you need to look them up. They are absolutely magnificent. I can't speak highly enough about them. They make their own mulberry paper. They grow mulberry trees, and then they cut them down, and they make their own paper. And wow. then they also have a massive handmade print presses that so you can do everything from screen printing they have entire like they bought like five entire companies of letterpress stuff so they have like a dozen different letter presses like the they you can hand mill your own paper you can make your own printing you can do everything there it's a magnificent wow. place that sounds incredible. That's yeah. like right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, and it's huge. It's this massive old industrial warehouse. So like you can be doing things like they they do a lot of stuff even with like handmade paper sculptures. So so you hmm. can use the the medium of paper making as a sculptural process for your create your you know visual expression. It's a fabulous place. Can't recommend it, it enough. Okay. Yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah, it reminds me of like like Dioudane in New York is like famous and renowned for their paper pulp work. And I've seen a few print artists recently who are like Swoon was one. Um, she was like doing some kind of project where she was doing like paper pulp editions. And, you know, and Chuck Close did beautiful paper pulp editions back in the day that were just amazing to see, you know, part of his like pixelation sort of approach, but with like paper pulp clumps of gray and like, I don't know, unbelievable. Well, yeah, what's the, what's the scene in Prague like? Like, I know I met a dealer of Eastern European print work, like, about, a, I don't know, a month or two ago. And as I was talking to him, you know, he had a huge spread of, like, really cool artist books, which seems like there are more people working in artist books there than, than I see a lot here. But it the work always has this, like, really cool, intimate kind of feel. And there's way more of an embrace of intaglio and litho, I think, in Europe. These are my perceptions from a distance, but... But I feel like the art I always see, it's like very small, very, um, I don't know, allegorical in the imagery and mm-hmm. yeah. a little surreal. Like, I don't know. These are the things I feel like. What do you, How would you describe the print scene in the Czech Republic? I find the print scene here to be pretty strong in comparison to how I've seen other cities I've lived in. Um, there's a very strong uh, litho and etching and uh, not so much screen printing as much, which is sort of surprising to me. But there, there is some screen printing here. But yeah, lithography is probably the biggest uh, medium because they're still using and they're still using stones here. So this is not even mm. uh, no, no, no digital litho or anything like that. Like they're still because I, I follow some people on Facebook that actually 
you run uh, lithography printing houses here in Prague and they're always posting like sitting there doing like their aqua tints and the, their their spit bites and all these kinds of things like I mean they're really mm-hmm. you know sh- showing some beautiful craftsmanship on this, the stones and the plates and things like this so it's it's here it's present I mean but it's a very very niche market that's the like how to how do we share um the Czech market is strong in the Czech Republic. Hmm. Uh, it, mm-hmm. A lot of Czech artists don't leave the Czech Republic. They don't try to exhibit or sell internationally. It's a, it's a tough reach for them to to sort of get out to additional markets, um, and vice versa. The, a lot of the Czech market is has less of an interest in international art as well. So they don't they don't import a lot of influences and in other people to exhibit here, mm. uh, so, and and vice versa. They also don't seem to get out as much as they could, you know. Because I'm sure where you are, you probably see a lot of German and a lot of. Um, British and a lot of French stuff because they are very actively pushing their mar- their their work internationally. Whereas the Czech people just are not quite that um, active internationally. It's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense actually. Like why the the stylistic tendencies kind of align so much in Eastern Europe with one another, but not with the rest of the world. But that's why I think it's so interesting. Is it's a little more separate and because of that it's different and oh yeah if you went to like poland or croatia or you can't ukraine you're going to get an even more sort of um uh, maybe not as not it's not a progressive but it's like not as up to date i guess would be so like their styles are still sort of stuck back because okay here i'll give you a good example of why a lot of this is is because in the United States, where I went when I went to school, you go to school and you generally learn from people, and and oftentimes your professors are saying like, "Don't work like me. I will teach you sort of how to, but you do your own thing." And then sort of once you graduate, you go off and you do your own thing. Uh, in Europe, primarily here in the Czech Republic, it's very very much still associated with the master apprentice relationship. And so mm-hmm. your your work as a student should be in line with your master's work or the head of your atelier. Um, and so there is a direct lineage of, of like master to apprentice to master to apprentice and so on down. And so a lot of the work is sort of still stuck in some of the earlier time periods. And, it ha- and because if they want to follow that lineage very, very visually and eloquently like they they don't vary too much um or else then they're not seen as part of that lineage so they a lot of them do stay like their professors hmm it's very interesting yeah and it makes makes a lot of sense and it's also weird because i'm having the thought that like the only reason that the art canon exists the way it is is because of marketing you know what i mean (laughs) because you're saying like we we probably see German, British, and French, but it's just like that. Just means those people were like marketing their art. Those artists were trying to get out of their own cultures and be bigger. And you know, I, like I don't know. It's just so weird because I always ponder like, why is the canon the way it is? Why is it missing so many people? Art history in general. You know? How much African printmaking have you seen? You know, how much South? American oh, don't get me printmaking. started. No, 
Yeah, it's crazy because like doing the show, doing my podcast, you know, it's like I'm always looking for like who can I put on the show that's different. I try to find people who are interesting people to converse with because like having a, a quality conversation is almost more important than the, than what the people do. But it's it's crazy because I, I do all these like afternoons where I'll sit there and I'll search like printmaking in Africa. I don't even know where to start. You know, I don't know if I need to focus in to like Ghana or Ethiopia or some specific location, but it's like, I cannot find anything like anything. I can't find any people. I can't find the artists who do something. I can't even find galleries in, in Whereas, those regions to I mean, even contact. Yeah. I could find you a letterpress shop in Dubuque right now if I needed to in Iowa or something. It's like, but I could not find you that same thing in like South Korea, you know, or, uh, or Brazil. I was like looking, where were they having, it was South Korea, they were having all the big protests for a long time, right? Like, um, There are a lot of protests in the world, be more specific. I think it was like more recent. Uh, oh, you're talking about Hong Kong. Hong Kong, yeah, sorry. I was, yeah, so I was, I was looking at Hong Kong and everything happening there and I thought, you know what, I bet you underneath all of this, there's a bunch of artists who are making stuff that are either protest signs or mm -hmm. who are just like, in their work responding to this popular movement, you know, which I'm sure is happening. But to find that through the internet is just like not doable. Like I search for keyword terms and I'm just like poster shop, gig poster, risograph, zine maker, like anything. And it's like, you cannot find people who represent the print culture in other places, at least just through the internet that that we have, you know, and I'm sure they all exist, these people, but it's like, I, I try to reach out and connect with people in the world, but I just, I can't tap into it in a lot of ways. And it's really frustrating, you know? It, it well, it's language barriers because like when that I moved too. here yeah. and, and like, I started looking for a screen printing shop to go out, they, I would do Google searches for like screen printing in Prague and nothing would show up. And then I did a Google translate and translated screen print. And then I did a search for the translation and all of a sudden screen printing shop showed up. So it, mm -hmm. it, the problem is, is that if these websites even exist around the world and they're in different languages, they don't translate them. So when I do That's a Google true. search yeah. in English, I'm not going to find it. it. It does make it exponentially more difficult. Um, but yeah, and like language, you know, people who are, you know, on social media, like the the wonderful thing about like Instagram is they're just like international artists galore. Like, so there's people from all over the world. And like, I find all these really great people who are like in the Netherlands or in Canada or, you know, from many different places. And like they, what I've encountered too is like a few different people, like I hit them up and it's, their work is incredible. Like I would love to tap into like, what are they doing? Where are they, where is this all coming from? Why do they pick the medium they're using? Whatever. But it. But again, like I've had people respond who are just like my language, you know, my, my use of English is like not something I'm comfortable with and I feel insecure trying to do an interview like full on, you know. And so I've had to like also adjust like who I can talk to just based on that. And I really wish I was multilingual and I could um, connect with more people because I would also, if I could, I'd prefer to speak in Spanish to someone who speaks Spanish natively than try to like do it in English all the time. Cause I'm sure people can be more expressive in their own languages too, you know? 
Yes, it's absolutely true. So, yeah, I mean, trying to be international is a very difficult issue. I mean, I'm here in Prague. I don't speak Czech. And, of course, around me it's Austria and Germany and Switzerland and Poland. And I don't speak mm -hmm. any of those languages either. But surprisingly, the art world, to a certain extent, has kind of agreed that English is the common language in many cases. So mm -hmm. if an artist or a creative person is trying to promote themselves internationally, oftentimes they use English, which makes it easier for me, but maybe not easier for them. Yeah. Yeah, printing is good. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, a lot of interesting people doing it and podcasting about it's been a lot of fun. And once again, like another an incredible way to network, as I'm sure you've kind of found, it's like you just get to know people you would never have access to otherwise. Yeah, oddly enough, I'm, I literally just sat down today and I was like, wait a minute, everybody that's like interesting, famous, unique, whatever, they're all quarantined as well. And totally. so like, now is the time to approach these random people. Like, so like, I'm trying to think of all the famous artists that I'm like, I have always wanted to talk to this person. And if there's ever going to be a chance to talk to them, now would be the time. Yeah. I'm going to shoot out, yeah, like today, emails to probably four or five people and coordinate and, you know, a letterpress shop. And so, yeah, so next up, I can briefly say, like, my next ones, I'm going to talk to hopefully some artists in the UK because I'm trying to expand a little bit and feature more stuff just because the British print scene is really active. I know a couple letterpressers in Australia I'm going to have on the show, I think, looking for people in Europe. Like, there's some ne people in the Netherlands I have some connections I can send you as well. I actually yeah. know a guy who imported a letterpress from the UK into the United Arab Emirates, and it's the only letterpress in the entire country. Oh, yeah. See, that's that's a conversation I'd like to have. But yeah, I'm with you. It's like right when I saw the shutdown looming, like that week I shot out emails. I was just, I spent like half a morning just like looking people up and I was like, oh, you're cool. Oh, here you are. I'd, you know, I'd go through lists of vendors on the website people of print and i would just look at every single vendor they represented and then i'd click through on all the ones i liked and like look into them more and you know some i'm on i'm always hunting for new people so yeah any any tips are good yeah i've got some friends that i used to work with uh there's a, one of them's in the united states now and she's very interesting she's end up she now does like laser cut and 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 screen printed etchings and like all kinds of like blending mm -hmm. and mixing and then creating sculpture ob objects out of it kind of thing yeah. so very interesting stuff i'll send you her contact information when we're done that'd be great yeah but yeah like you're saying though it's what's hard though is even though i know that like all of these amazing people like everyone collectively is all sitting around and we have we all have time and everything i'm with you i want to contact these people like i'd love to talk to like kiki smith and like kara walker and like just some people i've revered their work for years and i i want to talk so much in depth about what they do but the way to find those people is almost impossible and that's been the strangest thing is like how do you find access to people even in today's world where you can almost reach anybody it's like some people don't their email is not online anywhere, and I don't know who I know who might know them either. So it's like, do you have a way to do that? Like find people who are hard to reach? Uh, 
just through friends of friends, basically, or that's that's the way you do it. But actually, oddly enough, that probably your best way to do it is uh, through the podcast. Literally, say like hmm. on an episode, "Hey, I'm trying to reach so and so. If anybody who's listening happens to know how I can, please contact me." Like, use your network as best you can. That's that's what I would do. Yeah, I have not tried that. Yeah, that's a good idea. I almost feel like it tips my hand to like who I'm thinking about too, but I, maybe I'm trying to hide that too much. I don't know, but uh, what, what's the point in hiding it? I mean, if, if you hide it so much, you'll yeah. never get to talk to the person and then it's not even, you know, not an issue. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. I should just like broadcast it out. Cause yeah, I'm sure. Well, you know, I went to New York and I was, I worked at a, um, a print fair there in the fall. And it, you know, this is how small the world is. Like I started talking to a bunch of students and then it turns out, they're like Kiki Smith's like students, you know? And I was like thinking about her cause I saw her work there and I was like, Oh my God, that's a cool tapestry and whatever. But you know, then I'm like talking to people who are directly in touch with her. And then later she like comes through the building and I missed her, but it, you know what I mean? It's like, we're all that close. Mm-hmm. Oh, we it's a very small industry. It's a very small world. Mm-hmm. The art world. Mm-hmm.